0: World fielder. He's gone to the dog. My
1: guest today is a gentleman I've wanted to have a conversation with ever since we became friends on social media a few years ago. When I started this podcast, I knew right away that he was one of the people that I wanted to get on the show. And when he consented to come on the podcast, I remember thinking, this may be our most or certainly one of our most interesting guests in the history of the show and there were several things that drew me to uh, this gentleman and the first thing was his photos that he posted on facebook uh, with his dogs and his coon hunts and and i kind of liked the way he took a no-nonsense approach to uh talking about his hunts it wasn't any bragging it wasn't any blowing just pictures of his dogs and pictures of the game they caught. And then there was one thing that I particularly noticed was his beard. You know, the Robertson boys there with Duck Dynasty made these long beards famous. Well, uh, our guest today certainly would qualify for that and has an awesome beard. And and then when I found out that he had the career he had and looked at some of the pictures uh, that he posted when he was working, I thought, man, that's quite a transition. Uh, our guest today and I have a mutual friend and a guy named Bill Scheninger up in Ohio. And uh, I had told Bill that I was going to contact uh, our guest, and he uh, told me that he thoroughly enjoyed a visit that he had with him and warned me that I probably couldn't get everything in the complete story, in the episode, um, you know I don't know a lot about our guests, but I'm getting ready to learn, just like the rest of you. I want to welcome to the Gone to the Dogs podcast, Mr. Al
0: Medcalf. Al, how in the world are you? I'm doing fine, Mr. Steve, and it's it's an honor that you asked me to do this.
1: Well, I tell you what, I'm the one that's honored, uh, Al. Uh, you know, I. Uh, in a few brief conversations that we've had now leading up to the recording of this podcast, uh, I uh, I knew that I, I picked well when
0: I gave
1: you a call and asked you to come on. Uh, you live in Georgia,
0: right? Yes, sir, I live in Barnesville, Georgia. It's uh, west central Georgia. We're about 30 miles north of Macon, 60 miles south of Atlanta, and there's, I think, three counties between me and the Alabama line.
1: I got you. So you're uh, over there in some pretty good coon hunting, I guess.
0: It's pretty good, uh, especially when deer season goes out. Yeah,
1: we have to battle those deer hunters more than we'd like to, don't we, it seems like, anymore. Yeah. 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 Well, okay, so that's where you live now. Now, is that where you were born and raised in that part of the country?
0: Yes, sir. I was born, uh, we used to have a clinic in Barnesville and uh there's no longer there it wasn't a hospital they just called it a clinic and that's where I was born probably i say three miles from where I live
1: I see well that I've always kind of envied people that got to stay in the area where they lived of course I was raised on the edge of a town when I was growing up As somewhere probably around 18 to 20,000 people but we lived right on the edge of town and I could walk across the highway and be in the squirrel hunting woods, you know, when I was a kid. But now that area's grown up a lot, all the areas that I used to hunt. uh, I wouldn't be able to do that at all now. But, uh, well, uh, just for another point of reference, Al, how old are you now? I'm 66. 66. And you've been retired
0: for how long? Uh, Since November the 1st, 2012, so nine years.
1: So tell our listeners what you did for for
0: what 30 some years? It 32 years I was a Georgia State trooper. Uh I I worked the road for the majority of the time and then uh I transferred into safety education and you know went to businesses and schools doing safety talks and stuff like that. The last job I had was implied consent and uh, every quarter you have to check the uh, calibration on the intoxilizer machines that the you get the DUI suspects dry, to to blow in, and uh, I traveled around checking those, and that was that was a really a real good job. It was Monday through Friday in the daytime, and I could coon hunt any night I wanted to. So,
1: <laughs> well, that, that's awesome. Uh, you know, uh, I uh, noticed on your uh, Facebook page there was a post there about a young man that just recently. Became a Georgia State Trooper. Is that right? Uh, I'm not sure which one it is. Okay, there was some. Uh, there was a post on there, and and it was some a younger man that that was just had just completed his training. I thought maybe it might have been somebody in your family. Uh,
0: oh, okay, that was that was probably my grandson. That's been a, a year and a half or something like that. Oh, okay, so, so
1: okay. your grandson's following in your footsteps then. Yes, sir. yes. Sir. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, when we talked for a few minutes the other day before we decided to, uh, we're setting up the time to get together, and we've got of had a, a battle trying to come up with uh, techn- technological issues, I guess I should say. But, but at any rate, you told me that you kind of had an accident out hunting the other night. Uh, tell us about that and how that's coming along.
0: Oh well, I stepped in a stump hole. I got a bad leg uh, last year on January the thirtieth. I had a mule that had a uh, had kicked a hole in the barn fighting with another mule and cut his back foot bad, and it wouldn't quit bleeding. Everywhere he stood, there'd be a puddle of blood. And of course, it was a Saturday afternoon. And finally, got a vet out here, and she said, "Well, we need to sedate him and uh, where I can clean the wound up, sew it up, bandage it up. Everything went fine." Um, until it was time for him to wake up, and he would start to get up and get up too fast, and a couple of times he fell with his head bent back behind him, and we he scared he'd break his neck, and my wife was squatting down by a bush hog mower over there, and, and uh, he got up again and started stumbling backwards and fell on her, and uh, so the vet said, I got the mule, go see about Teresa, and I ran over to too, and about the time I bent over her, the mule came flying back, stumbling again, and fell on both of us, and it broke my right leg and ankle and broke her left leg, and we both had to have surgery and couldn't put any weight on them for three months, and we got pins and plates in our legs, man. And The other night when I was hunting, I, I stepped in a stump hole with that bad leg, and it was pretty sore the next day.
1: Well, I can imagine it was. I remember my first encounter with those stump holes was in... When I uh, went to work for AKC, and they uh, moved me to Raleigh, North Carolina, and a lot of piney woods there and all, and I discovered those stump holes. It's where the the old stump's there, and they just kind of r- rotted out and left a hole. Isn't that, isn't that about right? right
0: right that's right they usually camouflage with leaves so it's, it's kind of like a booby trap
1: i got you well you know we're going to definitely talk a lot about coon hunting about your dogs and all that because this is primarily a coon hunting show but um i wanted to talk to you a little bit about you are uh to use a, a a common term i guess a son of the south uh you grew up in georgia and uh, And I know that most of my friends across the South, are are very, very proud of their Southern roots and, uh, and the great history of the South. And of course, we all know about the Civil War and, and how that turned out. But, uh, there's just so many great stories out of all that. And I learned that you have kind of taken an active role in keeping some of that history alive. Uh, What can you tell me about that,
0: Hal? Well, I've been a member of the Sons of Confederate Veterans for uh, for over 20 years, and it's a great organization. We do a lot of cemetery work. In fact, there's a Confederate cemetery here in the the town, the county seat, the county I live in, Barnesville. And the the soldiers there were buried uh, during the Atlanta campaign in the uh, summer and fall of 1864. And a lot of them were unknown, uh, had unknown markers on the grave. Some of them were known. And over the time, it had gotten almost impossible to read them. And our ISCV camp has uh, replaced all the stones with new stones. We moved the old stones. We didn't throw them away. We moved them down as foot stones. And in the meantime, uh, we got the medical records for the Confederate hospitals that were here in Barnville and identified... I guess probably forty or fifty of the soldiers that were previously unknown, and uh, they come from all you know all the states in the Confederacy. There's one Union soldier buried there from Connecticut, and uh, there were no prisons here uh, in 1864. They had a train wreck during the Battle of Atlanta close by the town here, and it was a, a train load of prisoners and uh, and wounded coming south, and uh, Hit head on with a a trainload of supplies going north, and so the only reason I can figure out that Connecticut guy's ended is he must have been a prisoner on that southbound train.
1: I'll say, you know, I I look back in my own history. My dad uh, was born in Middle Tennessee, and uh, uh, my grandfather, who I was named after, his name was Stephen, but his father's name was Nathan and there is an article that appeared in a local paper there uh, back in the day that uh, my grandfather had written in kind of like in a uh, how we write in a, an op-ed piece or something and he he was a uh, wheelwright he made wagon wheels he made them you know from scratch the hub and the spokes and and then put the metal tire on them and all that and he too had a long beard. Yeah, I have several pictures of my great grandfather and uh, but in this story that he wrote for the newspaper he talked about the uh, at the end of the civil war and how that when the union soldiers kind of came through uh they took all the horses all the the stock that they had on the farms which made it pretty difficult you know for them to to make a living at the, at that time and i'm sure there's a lot of that history all throughout the south uh you know it was a it was a terrible time for our nation but it was also a very proud time i think for the people who lost uh, well you know uh, uh, somber and and uh, uh Serious time for people who lost family members in that war. Uh, right.
2: For sure.
0: Yeah, sure it was. There's a, there's a lot of stories about that, that uh, but they didn't carry off the killed as far as livestock. And, yeah. And stuff, but, yeah.
1: The spoils of war, I guess, you know. Right. Any I, way we look at it, war is a terrible thing. I know. Well, yeah. um, and you also posted something, and you and I were talking about this a little bit, and I don't no, uh, you have mules, don't you? Have, got two mules. Yeah. uh uh-huh. You coon hunt off
0: those mules? No, I don't. Uh, uh it's it's it it takes long enough to get your tracking collars and your dogs loaded <laughs> and everything else. And uh, I just I've never coon hunted on them. I just you know just pleasure ride you. them.
1: I got you. I'm sitting here looking across the room at a at a drawing by uh, the artist Joe Vick. I don't know if you've ever met Joe or seen any of his work. He comes around to all the major coon hunts like uh, autumn oaks or grand American so forth. And he uses a pencil and and draw. He, he's really good. And a lot of his work uh, centers on old uh, uh, barns and mules and, and that sort of thing. Well, my grandfather, fielder, Uh, Was legally blind. He couldn't drive an automobile, and he worked his farm there and raised nine kids on about an eighty-acre farm there in Tennessee with uh, a team of mules. Old Pat and Trim, and I'm looking here at him now because I had Joe to take a picture of my granddad. I mean, uh, use a picture of my granddad and put him into a photo, uh, a painting with the two mules and the barn in the background. And uh, it's just one of my most treasured things because I I remember very well my granddad, you know, hitching up the mules and working them, you know, when I was a kid. I was only six when he passed away. But uh, granddad would uh, harness those mules and and drive them eight miles to town on Saturday uh, to do his business there and then, and then drive back home. But, uh, I've always liked mules too. So you got a lot of things that are interesting me.
0: here. <laughs> you know, I, I've always been fond of mules myself. <laughs> I, I see.
1: Well, in talking to Bill Scheninger, he mentioned, and I didn't put this in our notes, but it just, I just happened to remember that he enjoyed awfully much. The, uh, stories that, that you told him about your family. Is there anything that you you could share with me there, maybe that we didn't think about before?
0: Well, uh, one thing is is I'm living on the land that my family has lived on since 1821, and uh, wow. that, that's that's uh, that's when they settled this part of Georgia and, and drew land lots in 18. So this is a 200 year that my kin folks have lived here. That's and, pretty uh, amazing. Yeah. We're I guess we don't move around much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you, you know, there's an old saying that goes around and I don't know if it's that popular in Georgia or not, but it is sure around the country. If you see something that you, or there's something that you really care a lot about, you say, I wouldn't take a farm in Georgia for Uh that, you know? Uh-huh. You ever heard that expression? I've never heard that one. You didn't? Oh man, that was up where I was, uh, grew up, and all you know. say, man, I wouldn't take a farm in Georgia for that dog. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well,
0: I guess in Georgia we already have the farm so that's that's why. <laughs> I guess that's
1: for sure. That's for sure. What? Well, since this is a coon hunting podcaster, uh, we do venture out and talk about other types of, of hunting with dogs and so forth. I wanted to talk uh, to you about your experience coon hunting. Where, when did you first get the bug? When, or can you remember your first well, experiences?
0: I, I was probably 11 or 12 years old. My my daddy was a coon hunter. He hunted black and tans was about all he hunted. And I, I loved going with him. And, uh, in fact, one time I think I was probably 11 in the sixth grade, or something like that i got a bad report card and i love coon hunting so bad so much that uh my punishment was i couldn't coon hunt till i brought my grades up so, <laughs> uh, he and about the time i was in my late teens i wanted to get dogs of my own and, and dad about quit coon hunting and uh so anyway i I was pretty much on my own then and uh but so basically, I've been coon hunting for fifty something years. oh' you know? be dark.
1: well, what kind of dogs did you have back then when did
0: your dad have or uh, uh well, he he had black and tansy that's I remember, right,
1: you said yeah. that.
0: yeah, uh, some of them are registered uh one or two were great dogs i I remember he had a Wagner bred female and a bloodworth bred male, yeah. Uh, and uh, my first good dog, first good one, was a uh, half blue tick, half black and tan. I see. I, I called him Moses. I uh, What happened was when I started coon hunting by myself, some of my buddies would go with me, and uh, I had three or four dogs, and, and I hunted one year, and we I think we'd treat two or three possums and a three-legged coon. And <laughs> <laughs> and my, my daddy gave me some advice, and I listened. He said, what, what you need to do is pick out your best dog and uh, and and go see Cliff Jacobs about hunting with him. And Cliff Jacobs was an older black guy that my daddy had hunted with when he was hunting a lot. And, uh, and Cliff was happy to have a young guy go with him and, and do the driving and help carry stuff. And then plus I had a, a few places to hunt, and he had a few places to hunt. And so that one first season that I hunted with Cliff, we we made a coon dog out of Moses. And that was the first good dog I had.
1: You know, the first coon dog that I can remember my dad having is uh, my dad was a pipe fitter. I've told the stories that we mentioned uh, in uh, an episode here that aired recently with uh, Trent Williams, the bluegrass uh, uh, musician there from Ohio. But anyway, as Dad traveled around, uh, he was out working in uh, Western Kentucky, and we lived in Charleston, Missouri, just across the Mississippi River there at the mouth of the Ohio. And uh, he met a fellow there that was a uh, barber and uh, was a coon hunter, and he had made a cross. And this dog was, I, I believe, half black and tan, a quarter blue tick and a quarter bird dog, and he got two of these pups, and he gave one to his brother there in Tennessee, and I remember my dad having Sam. Sam looked like a a black and tan, a Mm -hmm. typical black and tan, but he had stocking feet, white stocking feet, and some white in his chest, and uh, that was the first coon dog that I remember at home, you know, and, and, uh, Sam apparently had had distemper when he was a puppy because what the vet said, that he would go into these uh, seizures at the tree when he'd get excited and tree barking. Sometimes he'd mm-hmm. throw him into a seizure, and uh, he eventually, uh, I think, either died of that or maybe had to be put down. But but there again there's a parallel. You know, the gray dogs, most of uh, people, back in the day you know had gray dogs was it that way there in georgia mostly gray dogs yeah yeah
0: Yeah, it was mostly gray dogs uh that you you didn't see that many registered dogs at all back then right were there a lot
1: of coon hunters in your area as you were growing up and
0: there were several there were good many there's a lot more than they are now yeah Uh, in fact my daddy used to hunt with, uh, Charles McCracken and, uh, Charles kept dogs and I guess bought them and hunted them for Cass Walker. Okay. And, and uh, he, Charles didn't live very far from us. They hunted together a lot. And then, the, uh, Mr. Tom Rush was a dairy farmer. He, he coon hunted and there was several around.
1: Yeah. Well, our listeners, uh, the older ones like us, I'll re- remember Cass Walker and his ads in Full Cry magazine. And, uh, I have a lot of family in Tennessee Cass operated those, uh, I think they were called cost cutter supermarkets around Knoxville, Tennessee, but he was a coon hunter and quite a character. And he had a TV show that he'd, he'd be out coon hunting the night before. And he'd bring in two or three coons and throw them on the floor there in front of his, in front of the camera. (laughs) And he'd talk about, uh talk about his hunts, and then he put those ads in. You remember his ads in Full Crime Magazine? Oh,
0: yeah. It'd be about two pages, and a lot of them he called Leadbetter Curves. He got from Mr. A.D. Leadbetter up there. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed reading his ads.
1: Well, he did, and he seemed to have, and I don't know, I can't verify it, but he seemed to have a pretty solid guarantee on his dogs. If you didn't like it, bring it back. He'd give you another one of equal value. I don't know if he if he said he'd give you your money back or not, but uh, uh, he, he was quite the character. I mean, real colorful part of coon hunting history. And if you want to go on YouTube out there, listeners, and uh, ser- do a search for Cass, C-A-S, Walker. And uh, there's one on there that's really funny. He's talking about people uh uh swiping women's purses on the parking lot in, out in front of his store. And he said, uh he said, you all think that's pretty good. He said, but I tell you what we're gonna do. Uh if if you do that anymore, we're gonna catch you and we're gonna fix you right up. We're gonna put you in the best hospital in town. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, he was a
1: character. Well, I, that's funny. I hadn't thought about Cass, but you brought him up there, and that triggers so many memories. And yeah. uh, back in the day, you know, the magazines were full of dogs for sale from various kennels, and and Cass was one one of those for sure. Well, what kind of a of hunting territory do you have there where you hunt, now?
0: Uh rolling hills. We we don't have a lot of real tall, steep hills, but it's not flatland in this part of Georgia. We have rolling hills, uh some beaver swamps. Uh you can go a few miles west of here and the Flint River's down there. And we have a well in some parts of the country they would call what we call Potato Creek a river. It's a pretty good sized body of water. And I have a uh one hunting spot that, that borders Potato Creek. But the best way to describe it is just rolling hills.
1: I got you. Is there still a lot of farming around there, or is it? Uh, I it's mean, a, it, yeah.
0: It's a good bit a uh, a lot of beef cattle farming.
1: Uh, hmm. I'm go try. I see. I see. Well, um, now I know that you you know a, a lot of guys uh, get set on a certain breed of dog, and we've got these seven breeds now that. UKC recognizes, and I think all our listeners know who they are. For many years, there were six, and then they added the American Leopard Hound. But you've kind of taken a little bit different uh, tact with your dogs. You're you're not real particular about the breeds, are you?
0: No, I'm not. I, I have uh, I've got leopards, I've got plots, and I've got plot cur crosses, and I've uh, I've hunted all seven of the breeds recognized by UKC, uh, I really, the breed doesn't matter to me as much as, as uh, how the dog handles and, and his ability. It, to me, is the most important thing. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of paper. Some of my dogs are registered, but uh, until I get ready to breed them, I might, uh, you know, a lot of times I don't even permanently register.
1: I got you. Well, if you're not playing, of course, within UKC now, uh, and and PKC, you can register them as crossbreds, right. uh, but I- if it's really not in your interest to 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 start a line of dogs or keep a certain line of dogs going or enter competition, uh, I can understand why that wouldn't be important to you. Now, do you do any competition hunting at all,
0: or have you done it? I have in the past, but the the last cast I was on, it, this will give some people that've been around a while an idea how long ago it was. It was a three hour cast, and I was in a I was in a great dog cast, so it's been a while.
1: <laughs> well, that's for sure. I was at the UKC when we had the you know all the talk about having two hour hunts as opposed to three hours, and I believe it was PKC that first started doing that. And there was quite a controversy, you know, back and forth, some wanting to stay with the three, some wanting to, to go to the two. Mostly it was the clubs that wanted to go to the two-hour because it made it easier for them to get guides for the hunts. And right. and back then, the casts were judged, you know, by non-hunting judges, the champion casts were. So, uh, anyway... Uh, but anyway, I remember, uh, John Wick saying that if a man loves the coon hunt, he'd, he'd rather have a four hour hunt, <laughs> you know, <laughs> than right. a three hour, I mean, why cut it short? But I can sure remember those days that they were three hours. Of course, when I started, uh, competition hunting back there in West Virginia, hunted mostly in. Uh, Virginia and Ohio and West Virginia, and, and man, you could get out there and maybe tree a coon or two and have a pretty decent score. But it was something else to keep that score for three hours,
0: you know. I know that that <laughs> was, that was my problem. Uh, the, the, the the Moses, I hunted in that hunt, and and I was being honest with it, you know. And and Moses, one of his faults was late at night. He would open his mouth on some tracks that he should have just passed up. Yeah, and uh, and and mm-hmm. that that was the problem. Then. Yeah, <laughs> bite that, off
1: a little more than he could chew there,
2: man.
0: Right. Yeah. He, uh, it it was a good, honest cast. The the two guys I was hunting with, one of them had a black tan female and grade dog, and the other one had a grade Walker male, and uh, he's a real good friend of mine, and we hunted together a lot. And uh, of course, he he was a grade Walker. And I had, I was figuring a score in my head. And the guy with my buddy with the grade Walker was, uh, he was, he had the scorecard. I thought Moses had minus fat. And uh, my buddy told me, he said, "Uh, Moses is minus fat. And I said, yeah, I thought he had. And he said, "Uh, there's not any doubt in my mind which one's the best dog that I've seen? Moses treat a lot of coons by itself. And Sonny never has treated a coon by itself. And the other guy chimed in and said, "Well, my dog ain't never treated a coon by herself either." But they got first, and, first and second place, and, and Moses minus that. I said, "Well, this, this game just did not for me, you know." And they yeah. were nobody cheated or anything. It was all honest. But it, I just, I just didn't like it too much.
1: <laughs> well, you know, you you re, uh, bring up another issue that a lot of the younger hunters for sure won't remember or won't know about. But there was a day back when you were hunting for night champion points that the dogs uh second and third and fourth place in a cast could get points depending on the size of the hunt. In right. other words, if there weren't enough do- if there weren't enough cast winners uh with plus points then he'd go down to second and third and fourth place in the cast. Mm. And that's kind of where some of the, the uh, notorious hunters back years ago, when you hear about people cheating in the night hunts, uh, there was a a certain group at times would say at the beginning of the hunt, well, I need a first, Uh, what do you need? (laughs) And so, (laughs) <laughs> and well i've already got my first place it was required to have at least one first place toward night an champion and then 100 championship points and somebody said well i already got my first all i need is a second <laughs> and that's how they kind of got their heads together sometimes and uh we get that uh that old story of meeting in a coffee shop, you know, and filling out the scorecard. I'm not trying to give anybody any ideas, okay? (laughs) But that sort of thing, you know, did happen at times. Uh, But the registries have done a good job of straightening out a lot of that. And uh, I don't think that happens very much. And especially now, because if you don't win your cast, you don't have anything at all. And it's kind of been changed now to... You know, just beating the dogs you draw, that's all. Uh, you know, so I think it's a better system, for
0: sure. Well, I don't, I, of course, I don't play the game, but uh, I i felt like for years, it's not a very popular opinion. I, I feel like before a dog makes night champion, he should qualify on the HTX, myself.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a good program, and I was glad to see UKC come along with that program where the dog has to go out there and prove that he can run and tree coon to get that title. I know in the years that I was with the UKC registry, uh, that was a very popular uh, suggestion by people that before you give that dog uh, a night champion uh, t- title or degree, you need to take that dog out and and have him prove that he can do it alone. Right. And, You know, they kind of did that with the single registration process that, you know, where you could bring a dog in whose parents, uh, you know, he hadn't been litter registered as a puppy. Uh, Maybe his pedigree was from, you know, uh, crossbreeding or whatever, but you had to present a pedigree, a handwritten pedigree, and you had to go to an inspector and have that inspector see that dog running a tree of coon by himself, and then sign off on it. And I think that procedure is still in place uh, mm. through the breed associations. So it wasn't a bad idea, but it just wasn't feasible when you were having all these hundreds of night hunts all over the country and these dogs finishing out and, uh, and then send them back and have them you know, hunt to get certified. But uh, it wasn't a bad idea for sure, Al.
0: Right. Well,
1: how many dogs do you have right now?
0: Well, all total, I think about 13. Uh, I, see. I have, I have, uh, well, I got a couple that are retired and one that's probably getting close to being retired. Then I got a, a Stevens Kerr squirrel dog. and, and But the, mm-hmm. the dogs I couldn't hunt, I, that's 10. I, I kind of rotate them. It depends on... Some of it depends on how tired I am or where I'm going hunting as to what dogs I take, and uh, I, you know, I got some that hunt closer than others, and and others that uh, I don't have a a dog that's going to be a half a mile from me, but I got dogs that hunt hunt a little deep for some of the places I have.
1: I see. Well, I in noticing back what I mentioned at the first of the podcast about seeing your posts on social media that you kind of mix it up, it seems like, you know. I'd, I'd see you there posting uh, a photo of, of maybe two or three hunts in a row, and it'd be different dogs
0: each time. So that's, yeah. yeah, that's the way I do it. Uh, out of the ten dogs that I'm talking about, five are leopards, three are plots, and uh, two are plot tour
1: I got you. So do you try to kind of pair them up? Uh, a dog that's pretty strong with one that's in training, or do you, how, how do you make those decisions, which ones you're going to take?
0: Well, that, uh, you know, a dog, a finished dog with a young dog is usually how I hunt them. Right. Uh, and I've got, I've got a young dog that hunts close, and I've got a, a couple of females that hunt close, and so I carry them together. That way, you, your older dog's not running off and leaving the young dog, and, you know, he can participate and learn.
1: Well, that's, you know, I, I, I'm talking with a young man up in Virginia uh, that has all kinds of territory to hunt. Uh, that's one thing about the podcast. And I get a lot of people that contact me. And that's been really the greatest reward of doing these podcasts is especially meeting these younger hunters that are starting out. Or maybe they've come hunted a little while, but they've got a lot of questions and they, you know, run up against problems from time to time, and I guess they think because I'm old, I know things, <laughs> but uh, I do love to, you know, uh, interact with those people, and and this young man, uh, I was able to bring a puppy back from uh, up in Pennsylvania for him, and he's got this pup now that's about four months old. He's wanting to get him started, but he doesn't have an old dog right now, and uh, he's been looking around trying to find a, a, a dog that he can trust, you know, to uh, to start his pup with, and mm-hmm. he, he was mentioning, he said, I rarely use a, a cage coon or anything like that to start my uh, dogs, my pups, but I usually just take them to the woods with an old dog, but. He said, "You know, I don't have that, and that kind of brings." Uh, before I get into that, I want to ask you now: Do you have a favorite breed, though? All you, although you've got these, these three breeds now, basically, or the cross breeds?
0: It would. I like the I like the plot dogs because of the history. I, you know, I'm, like we've talked about, I'm a history nut. I like yeah. the history of the plot dogs. Right. But and I, I like the leopards I have. But really, if it, a friend of mine asked me a while back, said, "If you couldn't have but one dog, got all your dogs, which one would you keep?" And I, I told him Pearl, and Pearl's half original Mountain Cur and half plot. and but my style of hunting, she she just really suits me the best.
1: Okay, well let's talk about then. How, you know, how how do you typically
0: hunt coons? I I walk hunt. Uh basically uh, if i'm taking some of those closer hunting dogs i hunt like most people squirrel hunt with dogs i just ease through the woods. you know if i can find an old woods road it's easier walking that's the way i go and the dogs go out and even tree something where they check back in i walk a little further and uh, then i then sometimes i got a couple of leopards that can get deeper than the rest of them and and i'll turn them loose and, and and more or less follow them a little bit and uh and if they check back in, I'll send them another direction. But I I walk hunt just about 90% of the time. I, in fact, my dogs aren't used to a truck driving around to them.
2: <laughs> so so
0: the ones I've trained aren't. You know, they used to be coming in on foot.
1: Well, that's keeping you in shape, I know. It has yeah, it to is. be. Yeah. 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 And that's a good thing, you know, And because I think we've all, you know, in our society today, we've all gotten lazy to a degree. Uh, you know, I remember when we didn't have four-wheel drive equipment when I was a kid in the mountains, and we'd drive out to a hollow somewhere and, you know, and park at the mouth of the hollow and turn the dogs loose. Well, we knew however long that hunt was going to be. If it was going to be till daylight, we were going to be walking all of it, you know. There weren't yeah. any roads to drive around. Uh, to get to the dogs or whatever but and of course now i'm at the age we're getting ready to go out to the white river in arkansas out to the refuge out there and i'm mighty thankful that they've got uh, these uh, atv trails everywhere out there (laughs) so we can uh, you know my buddy nubbin Moore, he's 80 now and i'm 75 so we kind of appreciate the fact that we can Cover more ground, you know, but we still have to park the ATV. They don't let you just drive them through the woods. Right. So, you know, if the dogs are in there seven, eight hundred yards, that's usually about the longest walks we have to take out there. uh well, I know one night we walked nine something, I think, to Nubbins Black Dog, but that's about it. And, uh, but uh, yeah, I know that's the way I grew up hunting, was walk, just walk hunting the way you described.
0: Uh, yeah. that's, I, you see a lot more. I like it because you're, you're out in the woods and you, you run up on different things, uh, see a lot of different stuff, old steel sites and, you know, just <laughs> old farm equipment that's been abandoned in the woods and just in, uh, in pretty spots. Like as one spot, I have run up on a couple of times that I've been to on top of the hill and i bet it's two acres of just granite rock at the top of the hill Wow! and and it, you know if you if you just run in and, and drive around to the dogs you miss a lot of that and that's
1: yeah. what i enjoy yeah well that's for sure and you you just bring up so many memories for me uh al because that's the way it was hunting the mountains of west virginia when i was a kid my dad told me he said steve you know, one time, these mountains were full of people. You know, there were settlers everywhere, and we'd come up on an on old house place, and there may not be anything left there but the chimney, you mm-hmm. know. And he said, be careful, you know, around there. It might be a well or something here. Uh, and I remember one night the dogs treeing in an old house way back on a ridge, had no idea that there was a house there. And they got in there, and that coon, it was... Living up in the attic in the living room at that that high old house, and of course, uh, when he come down out of that attic, there was a big fight on you know, in the living room floor of that old house. And I often thought that somebody came by there and looked at all that, all that carnage. There, they think there'd been a murder there or something. But uh, yeah, but you know, and and. Another thing, you mentioned farm machinery. I remember one night in Michigan, my dogs had treat around this patch of woods. Well, A lot of patchwood hunting up there where you've got row crops of corn or soybeans, uh, some grape vineyards, things like that. But I'd walk those edges, you know, and my dogs had gone left and to the west and a good distance in there and were treating And I was just huffing it to them, you know. And I don't know, something just told me, Steve, watch where you're going. Because the, li- the weeds were up a waist high, you know. And about the time I stopped and looked down, there was an old hay rake really? there, right there. If I'd have got tangled up in that thing as hard as I was walking, it would probably speared me <laughs> in mm-hmm. several locations. Most likely. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. Well, y- You cracked me up the other day. You posted a picture, uh, or no? You mentioned something about your dogs, uh, maybe treeing uh, some kind of what we call off game. I don't know if it was a possum or maybe you just mentioned this to me. And you said, if it climbs, it ain't
0: trash. What's your What's your philosophy on that? That That's my saying. If it climbs, it ain't trash. If, if my If it can go up a tree, my dogs aren't going to get any correction from me. I kind of like you know. You're, you're talking about the old school hunting, but you know, years ago in the depression and all, uh, people ate the possums and, and this, that, and the other, or sold the furs from bobcats and everything else. And if uh, I'm just happy to hear a dog tree uh, most of the time. I tell the my hunting buddy that goes with me, if we, if we tree a possum, I said, well, well, we ain't skunk. You know, <laughs> I, had, I had rather tree a possum than, than not do anything. I got and, you. And, uh, and especially not run a deer or a whole armadillo. Well, uh, you
1: know, what we're touching on here is the pure love of a tree dog. You yeah, know, and, yeah, and I think a lot of the younger guys, and I, I hate to keep talking about younger guys because, man, God love them. I'm glad they're out there i'm glad they're enjoying the sport i want to i've tried to do what i can uh to preserve this sport for the the next generation and so forth but i just think they kind of lose sight sometimes when the winning get takes over of the fact that it's just a joy to be out at night with a good tree dog and hearing them you know find game and tree the game and and go there and see it. I know that's the way my dad and his brother started out, you know, there in Tennessee. I've got a picture taken, I think, in about 1937 of uh, some, it's in my book, of uh, my dad and, and his bro- younger brother and two cur dogs. And they've got two coons stretched uh, square the way they used to mm-hmm. stretch them years ago. And then there's a bunch of possums. And there's skunk hides too, mm-hmm. and uh and, and you know, and that's what they did. You know, they they uh, and of course, growing up in the Depression, uh, my grandmother would tell the boys, you know, catch a young possum, bring it in here, and we'll, you know, pin it up and feed it for a while, and yeah. uh, and then there'd be possum and sweet potatoes on the dinner table, the supper table.
0: That's right. That's the that's that's the way I am. I just enjoy the being in the woods and, and and having dogs, tree something, and and you can just think back. Well, you know, if there weren't any grocery stores, if I was living back in the mountains and had to depend on these dogs for food, could they feed me? And you know, if, if they treat possums, they could feed you. <laughs>
1: Well, the way meat prices and everything are going out, you might be on to something there, you know. We might we might all have to take a page out of your playbook there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, another thing about, uh, you know, you were talking about younger people wanting to win and everything. And, and my wife told me something one time that made my uh, hunting a lot more enjoyable after I figured out she was right and I thought about it. I came in one night, I hadn't, dogs hadn't suited me for three or four nights, and I I, I got progressively in a worse mood, you know, (laughs) and uh, she asked me, said, uh, are you perfect? And I said, no, I'm not perfect. I said, you remind me of that pretty often. And she said, well, why do you expect your dogs to be perfect? And I got to thinking about it, and I said, you know, she's right. And and when I quit expecting my dogs to be perfect at everything, it, it makes coon hunting a lot more enjoyable.
1: Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I got caught up a little bit uh, with that and this this uh, cruise dog, this young walker dog that I've got. And I just got him back home yesterday. Man, it feels good to have a dog around here again. He'd been up there in, uh, in uh, northeast Georgia since back in January. But, you know, he's bred pretty, pretty well. I mean, he's got a lot of famous dogs in his pedigree. He started out young and all, but you know, like any dog, he's, he's had some faults. He's had been a little, he'd give up on a bad track a little too quick sometimes. And I get to thinking, you know, man, he needs to be more accurate and he needs to be this. And And then, but just like what you're saying, you know, as I look back on my experience and down through the years, through life, whether it was in marriage or or as as a Christian, or or whatever, I, you know, I've had a lot, a lot of faults, a lot of mistakes, and I think that's great advice, Al. That we all could could uh, benefit by that for sure.
0: Well, I, I promise you, it makes it makes hunting a lot more enjoyable <laughs> with dogs. Yeah,
1: exactly. Well, speaking of your wife, uh, does she hunt with you at all?
0: She used to, uh, but she she was a trooper too. For- for for a few years, oh, and and back in 1992, when the Rodney King riots in in California overflowed to Atlanta, she was sent up there on the riot squad, and she got hit with bricks and bottles and everything, rocks and everything else, and it crushed some nerves in her leg and permanently disabled her, and uh, so Uh she she can't go through the woods anymore.
1: Well, that speaks to the job that you do out there as a public servant, and God bless her and uh well listen you we mentioned a little bit about do you clean uh the game you you tree do you ever eat eat why uh, tree game
0: yeah we uh i clean every tune I catch as soon as i get get home i clean it we eat it I've got friends that eat it, and uh to mm-hmm. me if it's not something like a armadillo or a coyote that's bothering you to just me i'm talking to me personally i don't really you know try to judge other people but to me it's a sin to kill something like that a coon or squirrel or something and just throw it in the ditch yeah uh, i i clean them all and and in fact to me squirrels the best wild meat be in the woods oh my, i
1: agree i agree my,
0: my wife uh she'll roast coons uh she makes brunswick stew which i i I came to realize that a lot of people up north don't know what Brunswick stew is but in the South and in Georgia we have it never barbecue restaurant but uh, my wife mm-hmm. I uh, use coon and brunswick stew and and, and, and that
1: they explain that because for instance like when I go to Orangeburg for the Grand American uh, I go into Duke's barbecue there there's a couple of places there and they have uh what they call hash now is that the same thing
0: as your what well, you call? I, I don't know what hash is. Okay, Herb, her Brunswick stew would, uh, usually has chicken in it, maybe pork, coon, squirrel, rabbit. Uh, the last batch she made had rattlesnake in it.
2: Oh, and, oh and, man!
0: <laughs> and then you know you got you got some tomatoes in there and uh, corn. Uh, uh, Corn in there. And some people put like lima beans in there, and it's it's like it's just like a stew, you know. I well, it's
1: kind of what we called back home or back up in Michigan when we'd have a wild game supper or something. We called it a hobo stew, uh-huh. where you just take a big pot and everybody bring uh, vegetables. You know, uh, might be canned vegetables, might be fresh vegetables, but and and just put it all in the pot with some some meat for some seasoning, you know, oh, and all, but, uh, that sounds good. I, I've easy. eaten rattlesnake. I haven't eaten it in a stew, uh-huh. but, uh, I did do that. The first time I ate that was in, when I was in service out in Texas, but, uh, well, that's interesting. And, you know, that was kind of the way it was at my house. Uh, my dad, he say, if you're going to shoot something, you're going to dress it. We call right. it dressing it out. And uh man, I'd come home from squirrel hunting some nights and I knew I had homework to do and stuff, but I'd be outside cleaning those squirrels and I didn't like it, but I knew they better be cleaned <laughs> and they better be in the refrigerator in a bowl or a pan in some salt water. <laughs> you know.
0: That's the same way here. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Okay, well let's talk about a little bit about your uh what kind of uh gear do you use for coon hunting you always told already told me you're you're a walk hunter uh do you wear uh frog leg type or wader type boots or do you yeah. just wear uh leather
0: i started uh i can't remember if it was last year year before last wearing the frog leg type they're uh they're yoders okay and for, and for years i saw well, this is one mistake i made uh before that, I always wore, like, knee boots, rubber boots, uh, and uh, I always thought that these frog leg things would fill up with twigs and everything else and get all down around your feet, and I said, no, I don't want those things, you know, and I finally bought a pair, and I love them. Uh, I don't have trash in the, my feet like I thought I would uh i haven't yeah. had a i haven't had wet feet since i started hunting them <laughs> right. and and that you i i kept a boot dry for years because you go you was gonna go over your knee boots yeah and yeah. and uh, but these are yoders and they're uh they're snake proof yeah. and uh, and waterproof and, and and i don't have i always wore like dans or Wick overalls when i hunted with the knee boots but these i wear overalls every day and with these things i just uh i just wear the overalls i had on that day <laughs> yeah you know?
2: just
1: pull them up and uh, and you're good to go aren't you john wick uh you know said years ago when he invented the the frog leg type waiter uh he said you know when your feet gets wet the fun's over and uh of course he was selling boots you know but uh, there's a lot of truth to
0: that and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah
1: and well, you mentioned uh, snake proof. Do you have a lot of snakes around where you are?
0: We have a few. Uh, I've never seen a poison snake when I was hunting. If I had, I've had one dog bit by. I guess it was a copperhead mm-hmm. when I when I was hunting. But I, I've never seen one. There's no telling how many I walk by. Yeah, uh,
1: if you don't look for them, you don't find them.
0: Usually. That's right. But we have a. We have copperheads in in some parts of the, in this area, some places. i hunt, We have rattlesnakes, but it's it's mostly copperheads. Right. Well, what kind of light do you like? I got a sunspot, and I I like yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, And I and I use a a Garmin Alpha 100. Uh, right. I I tell you, I, that's the best thing they ever came up with. <laughs> if, if 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 I'm turning a coon loose. I have a live trap for a young dog. I I put a Garmin on it then because if it didn't go right up the tree and the mm. dog gets, I yep. feel like a fool with my Garmin sitting at home and not on that dog. You know, so that yeah. every time I turn one loose, I ha, I have a Garmin collar on it. I I carry my coons a little different. I, it's kind of an old school way. I've got a a sack with a shoulder strap that you sling over your shoulders and and uh, I, that's how I carry the coons out in that. I see. And, and the other old school equipment I use is a, I got a cow blowing horn.
1: Oh man. Yeah.
0: And, and I'll, uh, every day when I feed my dog, I got one horn I keep in the dog food barrel. I blow the horn when I feed them. And, uh, and then I, you know, I try to get both of my dogs tone broke and I blow the horn and tone them and get them to come in and. One thing I like about the horn is if you if you and your dogs end up where you really aren't supposed to be and you want to get your dogs and get out, people if you go hollering for your dog and calling it, they know what that is. But this day and time, people don't know what a cow horn is blowing. Well, they don't, and (laughs) it just
1: so happens if I can work it in. uh, I I don't know. Sometimes things happen for a reason, I guess. But uh, I recorded. a horn uh because i've got one here right in the room where i'm sitting right now in a display case is my dad's uh calling horn that he had for years and years and that's the only way that we uh could get our dogs in you know and especially if one got out of pocket on us or or whatever young dog ran a deer and over right. the ridge and got away um but so hopefully we can include, include that in this podcast. Okay, uh, I want to ask you about the horn. Uh, when you blow a horn, do you get a deep sound of it out of it, or do you get a high pitch kind of a? squeal-like sound out of it. Mine's more of a deep sound. Yeah, and that's the way the one that I grew up hunting with, the one I mentioned that's on the wall. I have another one here that was given to me and I believe it was by a hunter in Texas and it has my uh, name carved in it. And uh, I blow that thing and all I can get is a high-pitched squeal out of it. You know? uh. And that's kind of the way the the fox hunters back in West Virginia they they like to squeal that horn, you know, uh-huh. to make their. Uh, well, we'll we'll have to have a podcast about calling horns sometime and <laughs> get I, into
0: that. I tell you a funny story about that happened. I think it was you pulled asked for that blowing horn. At that time, we had a a jack donkey in the barnyard, and I was, uh, I was hunting behind the house and. We're, calling in a dog, and uh, my wife could hear that horn. <laughs> I was pretty good way. I was long ways back there. She could hear that blowing horn, and then the 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 donkey would start answering it. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: so she knew what you were up to then, and yeah. she probably wasn't too happy with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let me ask you this: Do you do you? Uh, how long will you typically hunt in a night's hunt?
0: Probably average about two hours but yeah. uh especially now with this leg that's not a hundred percent right mm-hmm. but i you know i hunt almost every night if the weather's permitting. I, I like it's not unusual for me to go eight, 10, 12. Mm-hmm. One time i know 115 nights in a row but uh usually about two hours i that's got that's you average. well um
1: do you prefer to hunt by yourself or do you usually take somebody with you
0: or does it matter <sighs> Both really, and for two different reasons. The, the the guys that hunt with me don't have coon dogs, and, and honestly, that's the way I like it because I've always got a mm-hmm. young dog. Yeah, and, you know, you, you put two young dogs together, it's like two teenage boys. Oh, yeah, you know? and I enjoy them going with me. I'll go to some maybe bigger woods or tougher places when they go, mm-hmm. but uh, but two, I enjoy going by myself, and the reason for that. Is most of the time when I go by myself, I'm taking a younger, you know, well started dog and taking by right. myself mm-hmm.
1: and, and soloing him out.
0: Yeah. Right. And you, you really hate for somebody to drive down to go hunting with you and you not take the, you know, a, you not take one of your better dogs and try to treat some game for them. So if I'm hunting mm-hmm. by myself, that's when my young dogs get to work by themselves.
1: Right. Well, and here's a, a subject that might be a little touchy to some, but you know, I grew up with the plot breed, and people used to think, well, a plot dog's ill-natured. You know, they're they're bear dogs or hog dogs, and therefore they're mean dogs. Which, uh, and and you you're telling me you like a plot. You have some cur dogs. You have some plot cur crosses and all. Do you have ever have any issues with young dogs or so forth and wanting to be aggressive?
0: Over, about the only problems I have is dead coons. Okay. Uh, uh, it, when the coons dead and they get their mouth on him, the best thing you can do is put him in the sack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, they get to
1: claiming it
0: at that point. Right. Don't they? Right. They get jealous. So. And, and you got dogs that, you know, won't, they won't grab another dog bouncing off of them at the tree or. Won't growl in a box. You won't have, but they will get into it over a dead coon. A lot of
2: them will.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some <laughs> stories that I remember. We had a pair of plot dogs, old uh, Sam and Hoss, and they were big six or fifty-five, sixty-pound dogs. Muscular. Those dogs were dried to, back in the day when I was young. We talked. I talked with Lee Kearns in South Carolina the other day, and he's going to be on a podcast that will aired before this one so but anyway he he was uh you know we talked about uh hauling the dogs in the trunk of the car and that's kind of the way we did it back then because well for one thing we couldn't afford a truck and a car too and mother wasn't going to settle just for a truck she wanted a car to ride to church in on sunday morning and 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 to go shopping and whatever my dad was always accommodating, you know. So anyway, uh, we'd haul those dogs to the woods. They'd hunt together all night, tree together all night, shoot coons out to them, they'd be fine. Put them in the the trunk of the car on the way home and go around one of those steep curves in West Virginia and sling one of them over into the other. And it'd sound like you had a, a, a bucking horse. under the lid of that that car. And we'd have to quickly pull over and get them apart
0: and get them settled down, you know. Since you mentioned that, let me tell you about my dad's hunting vehicle before he got a truck. It was a a 61 Ford Falcon station wagon. And uh, I, I looked in the full cry. I was just a kid. I found in the full cry, I remember the name of the place I ordered it from. It was Art Craft. And it was a uh, about a it was bigger than a basketball a circle thing was it was yellow like a full moon and a coon's face in the in the middle of it and uh, I'm sure my mama made since I bought it with my own dollar and a half and ordered I'm sure my mama made my dad put it on the back of that station wagon on the back glass but that's <laughs> that's where it ended up and we drove we drove back and forth to school in that thing <laughs> but anyway he all he had was a, a some one before was with chicken wire on them behind the back seat, tied up with nylon toy to keep the dogs at the back. And it's, there's two stories about that thing. One is him and uh, Albert Taylor was younger than him and a little bit older than me. They went hunting one night, not, not too far from here. And uh, within 10 minutes, those those two black and tans killed two skunks. And they, <laughs> they, they had to ride back in that 61 Falcon. And Albert told Eddie, said, so, Wilson. You said, I'll just ride back on the hood. He said, no, nah, you ain't. <laughs> said, they, they both rode back home with the heads hanging out the window. And the other uh, thing is, is uh, that to to lift the tailgate down on that thing, you had to roll the back window down and reach in, and there was a lever you pull sideways on it to, okay. to the tailgate down. And that raider that big old Bloodsworth dog, the first thing he would do when you load him up was pee on that handle. And so, (laughs) every every time you went to unload the dogs, you got a handful of dog
1: pee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, you know, that was what we hunted out of station wagons. That was the precursor to the trucks, you know, Mm -hmm. and when I was a kid and we had, kind of like what you're saying, we had a, a, a crate made out of Two 2s or something—I don't know—and chicken wire was the first one, you know, and it just slid in there. and Of course, it kept the dogs contained, uh, but it—it it didn't do anything about the odor, you know. You know. And—and <laughs> uh, and, you know, those dogs coming back home when they were wet. And they stunk, and they get the passing wind yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in there, and you'd have to roll the roll the windows down, and your eyes would be watering. <laughs> oh, they call them the good old days, Al. Uh, yeah. They do. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lisa, let's talk a little bit about how you start your pups. Do you start out with a pup
0: usually, or do you like to buy a started dog or whatever? I, I usually start out with pups, and, mm-hmm. and I'm a little slower about trying to start them than most folks. I, I like for a puppy to be at least nine months old before I try to show him any game at all. Now, I walk him through the woods and try to get him used to you know crossing creeks and coming when you call him and stuff like that. And I have a about an acre fenced in. It's a it's a training pen. It's really it's made for squirrel dogs. Uh I put uh, got squirrel feeders in there of course the squirrels can come and go. But uh I put a, a young dog in there with a older dog, it's usually a dog that I don't hunt, I call it a pen dog, and they live in there for you know, and, and until that puppy gets the tree in good. And uh, then I'll, yeah. sometimes I'll turn uh, live coons loose for them. I, don't, I hardly ever trap a coon myself. People bring them and give them to me. And yeah. uh, and I'll turn them loose for them. And, and sometimes in the training pen, sometimes, you know, of course, if I turn one loose in the training pen, when he comes out of the tree, you can get out. But uh, uh, sometimes outside, back behind the house.
1: About what age do you put the puppies in that training pen?
0: Nine to ten months old. Oh, okay.
1: So uh, you, you it, let them grow up,
0: in you know, other right, pretty much. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the way I do it. I've, I've had better luck with starting them if you get a little age on
1: them. Yeah, well, I think that's that's wise. And I get this question. I mentioned the young fellow there in Virginia and uh, uh, several other guys. They'll have puppies three and four months old, and, and they're laying drags for them, and they're doing this and that. And it's in the dog's not barking up, and he's not doing. Hey, he's a baby. You he's know, he's a baby. That's Let what the, I tell. You. Yep, exactly. Let him grow up. You take everything's new to him anyway. They're easily distracted at that age because all those smells that are out there, you know, are, are new, and and uh, I've I've long subscribed to that. When I was a kid, you know, we didn't really expect a dog to be doing much till he's two years old. Right. You know, right. of course I don't say that you wait that long and way dogs are bred nowadays, I don't think you have to, but uh uh do you think among your breeds that you've uh, been associated with, do you think any other breeds seem to start earlier than the
0: other? Really and truly, of my dogs, not in my experience. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I I used to, I hadn't done it in a while, but I, I did put some dogs for the public, young dogs for the public in my training pen to get them started on squirrels. And one yeah. breed of dog that I noticed uh, just about all of them started quick and easy and young were those Parnell Carolina Curs. Are you familiar with those?
1: I've seen them uh, listed in the magazines and uh-huh. so forth, but no, I'm not. I'm not familiar with them.
0: They're they're Stevens Cur and Ice Mixed is what they are. All right. uh, And but uh, you know, I've never owned one, but I've started several in the training pen, and they seem to catch on quick and young.
1: Well, I had a good experience out in Texas when I was in the Air Force hunting with a Stevens Stock Cur dog, a little female named Susie. She belonged to elderly gentleman named ray colson out there and she was a for real coon dog she cold trails she's fast on track good little tree dog that's my only real and i've got a high school uh, friend actually he's older than me and and was a policeman in our town bob wood up in north carolina and he's got steven stock dogs but uh you know beyond that one experience in texas i've never really uh you know been around them that much
0: uh, i haven't either i've got a stevens dog man i've had one or two in the past but uh, uh but this this cross with the curves in it I, and i and i mean with the fast it. i don't even know the percentages they try to get they were they were early starting dogs in i got you well
1: <laughs> do you uh when you have trash problems or things like that do you use an e-collar at all or do you yes yeah, yeah I,
0: okay I I, I I don't armadillos and deer are the, the two things here but over the years i really and truly don't think dogs are bad about running deer as they used to be oh, I, agree. I agree i don't i don't know whether it's the bloodlines or whether in especially where i live there's so many more deer uh they, oh, yeah. they get used to them mm-hmm. you know i don't know Well, yeah,
1: you know, that's one of the problems, not problems, but things about this young walker dog that I've got. I've never had deer problems with him. I did suspect him a time or two bump a deer, maybe a little bit his first year before he's a year old. I know he'd open on something. He wouldn't go, you know, he'd cover a little distance and then he'd be back. And I figured he might be bumping deer a little bit, but, uh. You know, when I was a kid growing up, and then when the Walker dogs started coming into our country, the registered dogs, you you know, it it was expected that they were going to run deer, especially oh, yeah. the young dogs. You know,
0: and, and no tracking collars and no shot no, collars, and, no. And it all you could do is for days is ride around and look for them. You know?
1: Oh, how well I know that! That's the most frustrating thing in the world of trying to find a dog lost dog where you really. All you know is where you turned him loose or maybe where you last heard him. Beyond Mm -hmm. that, you don't have a clue where he could be. (laughs) And I I don't want to put that all off on the walker dogs. We had plot dogs that would run those deer too that had to be broken, you know, it's young dogs. John Wick came along with a breaking method and uh, uh, I'm not going to go into it in detail and you probably heard of it and seen Mm -hmm. it, but... But that worked real good on the plot dogs that uh, that we had that seemed to want to run a deer, you know. But uh, they like to catch stuff. And so they would kind of break themselves off of those deer because they, if they weren't catching it, they weren't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> too much interested in it. You know? Right. Well, you mentioned earlier that you have a couple of retired dogs, another one that maybe is on the verge of retirement. About what age do you, do you just go by the individual, or do you kind of have a cutoff there that that you oh, don't take them anymore?
0: Uh, by the individual, really. Uh, yeah, I, I know one of them is a. I got this retired is a busher stock female, uh, mountain cur. and she she cut her foot real bad uh, several years ago. She's fourteen now. And uh, that the that had to reconstruct one of the front feet, and then I, I noticed uh, a couple of years ago when I'd carry, her, she could hard, she she wanted to go and and she'd go out and hunt, and then when you she was heading back, she couldn't hardly make it, limping and all, and it was just just time to re- retire. And then others sometimes they'll they'll get the tree and slick on you, and it's about time to yeah. Up to yeah.
1: Well, we do foolish things, you know. <laughs> the older we get. That's for yeah. sure. Do you have a favorite dog, Al, that you can look back on? You mentioned old Moses. Yeah. Uh is there one that kinda of stands out over the years?
0: Well, I was I was crazy about Moses and, and a lot of others I had, but the one that stands out was a dog. He was a registered mountain cur named Potato Creek Zeke. And uh he was a Kimmer bred cur. I got I got him from Robert Kemmer when he was mm-hmm. five months old, and that's before they had the Kemmer Breeders Association. They were all Mount Curs back then. Yeah, and uh, I remember I went up there and he had two of those dogs, had two litter mate males at ten, and uh, he told me he said before you pick out one, I said I'm going to have to uh, check with Roy, my son, and because he wants one, and so anyway went back to the house and he asked Roy. He said this man's going to buy one of those pups up there. I said put. Which one do you want? And Roy said, Well, I let him decide for me. In other words, which, what I didn't take he'd take. So we went out there and Robert turned the the two pups out and one of them came up to us, you know, all friendly and wagged his tail and the other one put his nose to the ground and went down through a little head of wood down there. And I said, Well, I want that one going yonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was a—he was the most honest dog I believe I've ever hunted. Uh, uh,
1: Meaning accurate, right?
0: Yes, yes, sir. When uh. when he treed, you could about load the gun. And uh, he—he was—he was a direct son to people. Pe- the cur dog folks uh know about it, but others won't. But he was a direct son of Kemmer's Yellow Jack, and he—he uh, he was probably my favorite of all time.
1: I see. Yeah. Well, that's great to look back on those that you really. Really like and appreciate. You know, you mentioned that term about honest. Uh, Back in the day, we hear today about dog slick tree, and they'll say he's a slick tree and idiot. You know, well, back in the day, we'd call them a lying coon dog, is what they were. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. We already talked about you like to walk hunt. I had had the question there about which way you like to hunt. Uh, We have been at this now about almost an hour and 20 minutes. Was it and, that long? <laughs> man, I tell you, when you get together with somebody that, that's a brother in the sport and, and enjoys the same things, the time just seems to fly. But uh, what about the sport of coon hunting? What are the major changes that you've seen in it through the years?
0: L- loss of land. Yeah. Uh, that's I said. I said for years that the uh, the animal rights people wasn't going to stop the coon hunting. It was going to be the real estate agents. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and really and truly, that's my a lot of my dogs people wouldn't have because they they're closer hunting dogs. But I can put them in places you can't put a go yonder dog in and still have a good time. Good point. And, and it, it's going to get to the point unless you're hunting. Uh, WMAs a National forest or something like that, people are going to have to have closer hunting dogs if they're going to continue to hunt. Yeah. I know I know some people that have quit because, you know, they just don't want to make the switch and, uh, you know, and they, mm-hmm. they have to drive 40 miles to WMA or National Forest to hunt and, they, you know, after a while, they just quit. And uh, if you don't change to a closer hunting, better handling dog, it's, it's a nightmare.
1: Well, it, for sure, and we addressed this here the other day on in a conversation uh about these go yonder deep and lonely uh they've picked up this term now ambush dogs that just try to go until they find a hot coon they can get under, and uh, handlers like that because they can score that coon, you know right. they know it's there, but uh absolutely. Uh, it's going to have to come back around, uh, full circle. Right. And of course, the way you hunt Al, is the way I learned to hunt, and it was probably more out of necessity than anything else because I had to walk in rough. I was in rough terrain, mm-hmm. which you not Your terrain maybe is not as rough as what I had. No, but it's not. Coon were scarce, uh, you know, and you just couldn't have dogs that blew out the country on you because you'd lose them and your hunt's over. Right. You know, they might go over the mountain and tree something, but you'd never know where mm-hmm. they were. So, uh, you know, having gone through that, of course then I got into the competition scene and was very much a part of it through my registry work all those years and went out with a lot of good hounds, you know, in these hunts. And all, but I see that it's gonna to have to come back uh full circle, uh, if if we're gonna to continue to do it. Right. Uh, here here in Florida, when I was here in the sixties, it was nothing but ranch in Central Florida, it was ranches and orange groves. Now it's condos, apartment buildings, shopping malls, subdivisions, uh, you know, everywhere you look. They say nine hundred people a day come into Florida, move here. So, but we're going to do it as long as we can, aren't we?
0: That's the truth. And and equipment has you know you got your training collars, your tracking collars, uh, the lights, all that's a big improvement from what it used to be. Your uh, four wheel drive truck. So there's a lot of positive things, but it's just uh, it's the only negative is really the the uh, the lack of large chunk the
1: land <laughs> well that's true and uh it's universal anywhere you go pretty much you're gonna hear the same thing as people talk about the threat to to our sport is there a story that that comes to mind a favorite story something that happened to you out there in the woods or a night that just kind of stands out in your mind that you want to share?
0: Well, I got a funny one, but it, it, it involves possums, really. <laughs> but, uh, a, hey, uh, hey, if it
1: climbs, it ain't trash, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. There was an older guy that used to hunt with me some named Melvin Clark, and uh, he always said the best things out of wood are possums and squirrels. And I had a I had that Zeke dog, the camera dog, and a little gray, black and tan looking cur dog, and, and she loved to treat possums. And uh, and my experience with possums, we always got them and fed them out, and then killed them. And so yeah. if she if she treated a possum in a sapling or something I could get to, I'd a uh, I climb up there or, or shake him out, or, you know, get the possum. And then you have to food with a live possum somewhere to put him in the truck and carry him to Melbourne. Well, this went on several times, and one night he was hunting with me. And, uh, I had those two dogs, Gypsy and Zeke, and they were, they were running a coon. They went into a smoky place and treed. And when we got in there, they were split. Uh, they had evidently run this coon in there on top of a possum and Zeke was treeing up a tree that had the coon in it. And about 20 yards away, Gypsy was treeing up a tree with a possum in it. We shot the coon out and the possum was up, he was on the first limb, but it was a pretty good sized tree. And, uh. We got, got the tune out, and Melvin said, I sure would like to have that possum. I sure would like to have that possum. And I, I knew he couldn't climb the tree. And I said, Melvin, I can't climb that tree. And he said, well, just shoot them out. Shoot them out. So said, they taste better out of the woods anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I shot him out. And so after that, I would bring Melvin's possums out dead out of the woods. And, uh, <laughs>
2: and
0: and one time I took that same little gypsy dog, little black tan cur dog, squirrel hunting. She was a pretty good squirrel dog. And as soon as I'll never forget it was a Sunday afternoon in February. And as soon as we got out there, she pulled this possum out of a, a stump hole and killed it. And I I knew I knew where I was. I hung him up in a sapling. We went on and killed I don't know, two or three squirrels. And on the way back I, I carried him by Melvin's and uh so anyway, the next day I went by Melvin's, and it was one of those raw February days. The wind was blowing about 30 miles an hour. And it was cold. And Melvin said, "I just cleaned them squirrels, and I'm fishing to clean that possum. Well, they've been dead almost 24 hours." <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> uh, he he was going to scald and scrape the possum like you do a hog, and uh, you know, leave leave the skin on, and get the hair off. Well, I guess it was cold and windy. The uh, it had made his hands, made the the temperature wasn't right on the water. His hands were cold from dripping them in the water. He was trying to scrape the hair off the possum, and it wasn't working. <laughs> and he said, I know what i would do. Come in the house. So I followed him in the house, and he went to his bedroom with a wood-burning heater and uh, took the eye off of it and, and put some uh, little sticks and kindling in there and got him a fire going, and stood right there in his bedroom and burned all the hair off at possum. He, <laughs> he was salting him in and out of the heater. And you and you know how burnt hair Oh, was. my <laughs> goodness. And the <laughs> house, house was filling up with burnt possum hair smoke. <laughs> I had about all I could take. I started towards the door, and he said, Open the door, open the door, and I opened the front door, and he went and opened the back door, and had a big draft coming through the house, and he stood right there and burned all the house. Off. And anyway, when it got through, it, it, it his it belly was swollen up, and it was black charred. Oh! <laughs> and, and there was a guy that had a—he was an a insurance agent here in Barnesville, and about once a year, he, 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 he liked, he liked to cook. Different stuff. He he's like calling yeah. himself a chef, and about once a year he get Melvin to bring him a possum. Well, that's the possum Melvin took over, and they, they ate that. He cooked that possum, and they drank some whiskey and everything. And I guarantee you, the guy thought that. The possum had probably been shut up, you know, a couple of weeks. But the dog killed it when she brought it out of a stump hole. It laid around for a whole day, and then he burnt the hair off. Of it. <laughs> and for more tips
1: like that, consult <laughs> Al cat Culinary Page on Facebook. That's a great story, Al. My goodness. Hey, my friend. This has been just an awesome time. I have enjoyed this so much, and we're definitely gonna have to do this again. But the next time I record with you, I want it to be sitting on the tailgate, listening to those dogs' tree.
0: Okay. Well, I I've enjoyed it too. It's I, I can talk dogs all day long. I didn't know we've been on an hour and twenty minutes. Well, <laughs> hey, we you can't get
1: too much of a good thing, you know. Yeah. It's been great and we'll definitely get together again and I'm going to try to get up there to hunt with you. I'd invite you down here but you, I know you've got much better hunting up that way than we do here in yep. Florida. But uh, I have a little saying at the at the end of every podcast as we close it out and uh, this time uh, I want to say if somebody asks where's Fielder, tell him he's gone to the dogs with Al Metcalf.